The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Thank you so much for that uh, warm and gracious welcome on your part. Uh, you might feel differently by the time we're done here, but uh, I'll take it to, to start with. Uh, so uh, grateful for Todd and Cheryl. Um, we talk a, a lot uh, about how cool the partnership is that we have in this fellowship called Harvest Bible Fellowship, and that our churches are better because of one another and because of the time we spend together and so on. We especially count Todd and Cheryl as dear friends and have uh, really treasured our time with you guys this past week. I want you to know you've got a good one. You've got a serious good one in Todd, and I really pray, yeah, praise God for him. Amen. Amen. Love you guys immensely, so thank you so much for inviting me a fourth time for crying out loud. It's unbelievable the things I have to endure. It's all good. Well, listen, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 7 is going to be our text together this morning. I, I don't say that flippantly or lightly when I say let's continue to worship. We don't just worship in song. We also worship with our minds and learning and soaking up the truths of God's Word. Amen? Amen. I love an interactive thing, so you feel free uh, that way. Isaiah 9, verses 1 uh, to 7. While you're turning there, let me just say that I don't think you need much convincing that we live in uncertain times. We do, don't we? Just uncertain times, uh, both personally and culturally, it seems. And it is. From disaster and, and disease on the one hand to bloodshed and violence on the other, it's gloom and doom all around. You don't have to flip through your Flipboard account on your iPhone for very long uh, to realize, man, it's just from one thing to the next to the next. It's like doom, gloom. Is there any good news? There is, but that's not what sells. There's a whole bunch. And it's not just on a worldwide scale. It's on a personal scale. Like when you receive a diagnosis of cancer, or you experience the premature death of a loved one, or you hear about the latest tragedy in somebody's family close to you, or you hear about the latest shooting somewhere else or the latest terrorist strike. Our lives are filled with those sorts of things, and they often rock us to the core or thrust us into deep darkness. You know what I'm saying? often thrust us into deep darkness, which is the very issue that this passage addresses. It's one of the reasons I love it so much. It's the very issue that this passage addresses, reminding us of the help and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. The blessings of living our lives with Jesus, if you will. And so you follow along with me as we work our way through it. And I want to discover each of those blessings in turn. And hopefully if you know Jesus and you walk with him, and they will refresh your heart and soul and you will walk out of here like a few notches higher above the ground than you did when you walked in. And if you don't know Jesus as we walk through these blessings of living a life with him, I trust that God will turn your heart and, and tweak your heart and that you will want to know him and maybe even receive him before you exit. That's been my prayer and I trust that you would respond accordingly regarding whichever boat you're in. Verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her 
who was in anguish. Let me stop there just for a second. Writing 700 years before Christ, get the context, writing 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is saying that the darkness and distress that had plagued so many in days past won't last forever. That's what he's getting at right away. The darkness and gloom that had plagued so many up to that point will not last forever. There will be no gloom for her, God's people, who was in anguish. And then speaking of that anguish and that doom and gloom of days past, he says, in the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. I'll unwind that in a minute. Let's stop right there. I'll unwind that in a minute. But first, you need to know that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 right here, speak of Jesus. Isaiah 9 speaks of Jesus. You need to know that. And that's true, not because it just kind of seems right or it fits together as we piece the scriptures and so on, although many times that's what we need to do as we rightly divide the word of truth. It fits together that way. But in this case, it's explicitly said to us in the New Testament that Isaiah chapter 9 speaks of Jesus, like in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. You follow along with me here on the screen. It says, now, when he, that's Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which ought to make bells and whistles start going off in your mind and heart because of what we just read in Isaiah 9. He went to live in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, colon, and then he quotes it. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And Matthew, Matthew, one of Jesus' closest followers, identifies him explicitly as the one of whom Isaiah spoke, the great light that dawned on the people. And so everything we find in this passage here in Isaiah 9 speaks of Jesus, at least in verses 1 to 7. Everything we find in these verses speak directly and explicitly of Jesus and therefore applies directly to us. In other words, what the people in Isaiah's day only hoped for, what, what they only imagined, we have. What, what they only yearned for, we can experience in the present day right now. And the first part of that is hope. With Jesus, despair gives way to hope. It's the first blessing that I want you to see here. It's the first blessing that you cannot miss. With Jesus, despair gives way to hope. It's a promise. And to see this blessing and this promise and to fully appreciate it, you need to understand the situation that was going on in Isaiah's day. You see, the Assyrians, labeled here in the middle of the map here, the Assyrians were the dominant world power of the day. They were the 800-pound gorilla, if you will. And you can see that in their heyday, their reign and rule stretched all the way through this fertile crescent, all the way down and past the southern part of what is now modern-day Israel, what was then uh, Judah and in the north Israel. They were the one. They had all the power. And in 733 BC, they went on the warpath. 
And they started invading the northern part of Israel as you see it there. 733 BC, we know from extra biblical sources as well as the scriptures itself. And that invasion of northern Israel led to a time of terrible, terrible misery and despair. I've never lived through an invasion of another country. I will imagine that most of you have not either. But I've read enough of history, I've read enough of the world wars and things of that nature to know that it creates despair and hardship like nobody's ever seen before. And in Isaiah's day and before, it was no different. In fact, he even prophesied that the invasion of the Syrians would come and create despair upon despair. Look at the end of chapter 8 in your Bibles, verses 21 and 22 in that respect. Isaiah writes, they, he's prophesying, they, the Israelites, will pass through the land. In other words, they'll go about their business, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. In other words, they'll stub their, snub their noses at him. They'll be like, they'll shake their fist. God, what are you doing? How can you possibly allow that? Ever been tempted towards that in your life when despair hits? They'll look at the earthly rulers that God has put in place and they'll be like, who are you and what good are you? That's what was going on. That's what Isaiah prophesied. And that's exactly what happened when the Assyrians came in. Verse 22, and they will look to the earth. In other words, they'll look upward and they'll stub their noses, no good. And then they'll look horizontal for help. For help. They'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's despair. That's despair. When darkness closes in and distress breaks out. And I well know that you know that it's brutal when it happens, isn't it? To you personally. When despair washes over your life and crashes on you like the waves on a, on a stormy sea, like it's just brutal. It's brutal. But thank God that's not the end of the story for them or for us. Because he says in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It's been dark and hard for God's people, but it's not going to last. There's hope. Verses 1 and 2 spell hope. They spell hope. And then he elaborates, saying in the second part of verse 1, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In other words, God punished them. Again, referring to the Assyrians and the, the invasion that they uh, came and did in the northern part of Israel, a little closer up now, map. They came in from the north, the Fertile Crescent up here. They came in from the north. And the two tribes in the land that they inhabited in the northern part of Israel were Naphtali and Zebulun, labeled right there. Areas that had been apportioned to them way back when Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and then Joshua into the promised land. And God's like, here's where the people of Zebulun are going to live. Here's where the people of Naphtali are going to live. It was the northern part of Israel. And they came in. They overthrew them. And they were brought into contempt. Contempt because they hadn't been living for the Lord. But in the latter time, sometime after that day of despair... Another map here, a little closer. It says, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Three ways there of referring to the same place. Don't get hung up on that. The way of the sea refers to land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right in here. 
And then the land beyond the Jordan refers to the east side of the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River connecting the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And it was common in those days to refer to the way beyond the Jordan over on the eastern side of it. And then Galilee of the nations was the area referring to the north of the Sea of Galilee and all around it. Kind of the Roman first century way of referring to that particular area. Three ways of referring to the same area as Zebulun and Naphtali that bore the brunt of the Assyrian invasion. The point being that at some point in the future, Isaiah was saying, at some point in the future, having suffered so much, God would show them favor. God would extend grace upon grace to them. He would make that area glorious. In other words, despair would give way to hope. It was a prophetic promise. And then in verse 2, better yet, he explains how. And this is where it begins to apply to us directly. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The very ones who lived in a death-like gloom of wickedness and despair would eventually see a great light who we know is, gee, come on, who we know is Jesus. That's right. Standard Sunday school answer. It applies. We know it's Jesus because of what we just read in Matthew chapter 4. That's where he lived, in Capernaum, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali by the sea. But listen, far from, a, far from an obscure and secluded life, Jesus would bring his righteousness and influence to bear. It says, on them has light shone. And not just any old light, not just a little light bulb, not just one of those fluorescents that take like a year to come on, you know, that sort of deal. And not just anything like that, but the light of the world, the Apostle John tells us. The hope of mankind. And those who were looking for it saw it. They saw the light. Those who were dwelling in a land of deep darkness, those who were dwelling in the midst of their own deep darkness, who were looking for the light, saw it. Question is, have you? Seriously, have you seen the light? Have you seen the light, metaphorically speaking, small l? Have you seen the light, more importantly, capital L? Have you seen the light? Or are you still living a life of doom and gloom, going from one valley to the next, plague, plagued by despair? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil. Can you say that? You can if you've seen the light. If you haven't, you can't. Are you going from despair to despair? If so, I have good news for you. The light still shines. The light still shines. Waiting for you to see him, waiting for you to repent of your sin, waiting for you to be with him and find hope. Hope. Because that's what happens with Jesus. Despair gives way to hope. It's a promise, a promise that's ours just as much as it was theirs in Isaiah's day. Trust that encourages you if you've seen the light. But that's just the beginning of the blessings. Here's the second one. With Jesus, adversity gives way to joy. We'll move a little quicker now. With Jesus, adversity gives way to joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. And this is still Isaiah speaking to God. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice here, just for a second, that he uses the past tense, and he has been now several times up to this point. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And yet, he's speaking of something in the future. So what gives with that? It's like this. Isaiah is basically describing something that God would do in the future with maximum certainty. And so he refers to the thing yet future in the past tense. If you want to refer to something, if you were a prophet and speaking the direct words of God, if you wanted to refer to something yet in the future with maximum certainty, you would refer to it in the past tense. It would be like me saying, you have established a great Saturday church service. And if I were a prophet, again, speaking the direct words of God like Isaiah was, you could bank on it. You could count on it. You could probably do so anyway. But the point being, Isaiah, under the direct inspiration of God, was citing something that God was going to do in the future with maximum certainty. And that something was adding to his people, the nation, as it says there, which we know from the New Testament, God does by forgiving people of their sin and adopting them into his family so that people from every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity, ethne, nation, so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be a part of the family of God. He was multiplying his family then in Isaiah's day largely through birth rate of the Jews. He's multiplying his nation now largely through the adoption of anyone who names Jesus as Lord of their life. And that, man, that ought to make you jump up and down with joy. Seriously. No joy, no Jesus. I'm going to make a bumper sticker. I just decided. You know, when God adopts you into his family, when he multiplies the nation, and not just you, but your family and and the people around you and the people of your city and so on, like that leads to joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, like the joy of a farmer at harvest time. We know that in our neck of the woods in Isaiah, or in Iowa, Isaiah, wow, in Iowa, you may not know that as much in Barrie, or the joy of a soldier in wartime when the spoils of a conquered people are divided up. Uh, Both those things, though, are a little bit far from us. Closer to home, it might be like the joy you have when you get a bonus unexpectedly or when you celebrate a birthday if you're one of those gift-giving, gift-receiving, love-language sort of people like my wife is. I'm still learning. Or, Or maybe it's the joy that you have when you have a baby. That's the kind of joy that we ought to have, the jumping up and down kind of joy when Jesus saves us. When we see, amen, when we see the light and we have hope and we have joy that is beyond the expression of words, joy unspeakable, full of glory. I don't even know how to explain that. I don't even know how to do that. All I know is that I've got it. I've got it. And it keeps unfolding before me every single day of my life. And here's the thing. Jesus is the means of that joy. It's because of him and with him, with his light shining in your life, that the adversity of your circumstances gives way to joy. Oh, I don't mean to say that your adversity will go away. In fact, the Bible is clear that we will have trials and tribulations as followers of Jesus. With Jesus, we will endure those sorts of things. It may not go away, your adversity, but it certainly will give way to joy. I can't think of a better example of that than a guy named Nate Kittleson. Nate was an intern. He's pictured here with his sister. 
Nate was an intern in our church for about eight months back in 2012 until he came to work one day and he started sweating and running a fever and he wasn't feeling well and we're like, dude, you, you better go home or go to the doctor. And he's like, no, 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 I think I'm okay. And a few hours later, we're like, go to the doctor. And so he went to uh, his doctor and his doctor uh, assessed him a little bit and sent him to the emergency room. The emergency room did some more assessments and tests on him. They admitted him to the hospital and before the day was out, they had determined that he had a rare form of leukemia. Just like that. 20-year-old young man, scrapping, full of life. And so he and his parents made the decision that he would go back to South Dakota and he would be there near them when he was getting his treatment and in the hospital and so on. And so he did, but as the weeks went by and despite the various treatments, it became more and more obvious that Nate wasn't getting better. In fact, he was getting worse very, very quickly so that he became a former shadow of himself. He lost his hair. He couldn't keep food down. Uh, he became kind of more or less skin and bones. And nothing would stay. Nothing would stick. And some of that was because of the treatment, but most of that was because of the leukemia that was ravaging his body in such a quick fashion. But here's what I want you to know. Though Nate's health waned, his joy didn't. Like that smile was not unusual on that guy's face in those days as he laid there day in and day out in the hospital. Despite the adversity of his intense pain and suffering, his joy remained. In fact, so significant was his joy that our worship team wrote a song with the Vertical Church Band titled, He Has Won. Maybe you know it. It was inspired by Nate. The first words of which, to all who are the tired and the heavy laden, hope has come. To all who feel the weight of a broken spirit, hope has come. And with that hope, joy, unspeakable and full of glory, unexplainable. Like that was Nate. That was Nate. Why? Why? Because he saw the light. He had embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior and found him to be closer than a brother, bringing him joy in the midst of his suffering because Jesus was in the midst of it reassuring him that God knows and God cares and God keeps even in the darkest hours. With Jesus, loved ones, adversity doesn't necessarily go away, but it does give way to joy. It's the second blessing that we find here, the second truth for our lives. You with me? All right, here's the third. With Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. Oppression gives way to relief. Look at verse 4 in that respect. This just gets better and better as you go through here. It says, For the yoke of his burden, and this is the first of three fours, F-O-R here, all right? It's the foundation, it's the reason that hope and all of that and relief and so on dawns and, and is a part of our lives and is characteristic of our lives with Jesus. He says, For the yoke of his burden, that's the burden of, of God's people, all right? His being God's people. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, that's the means of keeping them subdued, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, Isaiah speaking to God, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. You've broken it. You've broken the rods. You've broken the persecution. You've broken the burden. You've cast it aside. You've thrown it off. You've thrown it off. You've done it. Just like you did on the day of 
Midian, which if you were like me, I had to do a little bit of digging on that one and kind of figure out what in the world is going on here. You see, the day of Midian was part of their folklore, if you were, uh, if you will, but not like in a fictional sort of sense. It was something that had happened in centuries past that they continued to look back on and were like, that, that, because God did that, he's going to come through now. It was the time 600 years before Isaiah when God used Gideon. Remember that? Judges uh, chapter 6 through 8. You can read it on your own this week. It's that day 600 years before Isaiah when God used Gideon and 300 others. Remember, he kind of whittled them down to from like, what, 22,000? And like, those of you who are scared, go home. And eventually down to those who drank the water in the right way and so on. 300 guys with Gideon who were from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, no less. He used the 300 in Gideon to overthrow 135,000 from the Midian army. That is the day of Midian to which Isaiah refers to here. And that's the very thing that God promises through Jesus. To displace oppression with relief. It's like Isaiah said, he's, he did it before, he's going to do it again. He, he did it even greater, he'll do it again. You can count on it. That's the God we serve, same yesterday, today, and forever. It means something. It means something. In this case, it means that he'll displace oppression with relief. He'll lift the yoke that burdens, as Isaiah says it, like our purposeless way of life. With Jesus, he lifts your purposeless way of living, the futility in which you eat, sleep, and breathe. With Jesus, he ends the abuse of persecution, the staff for a shoulder, and he breaks the rod of tyrants. It's happening. It's happening right now around the world. I trust that it's happening in your life as well. And it's going to happen in full when Jesus returns. It's going to happen in full, this oppression giving way to relief when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, with him in your life, you ought to find that the oppression of your guilt gives way to the relief of forgiveness every time. Every time. And the pain of your emotions to the comfort of rest every time. And the difficulty of your situation to the relief of resolution. It happens and it's going to keep happening. Because that's the effect Jesus has on things. It's like Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He, to, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Including Relief. It may not happen in your time, but it will happen. Because with Jesus, oppression always gives way to relief, no matter how dark your soul, no matter how dark your days, no matter how dark the time in which you live. It's the third blessing. I trust that it refreshes and refuels your soul for whatever you're going to face or are facing. Here's the fourth with Jesus, strife gives way to peace. With Jesus, strife gives way to peace. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior, it's a bit poetic here. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's the second four that we see providing the basis for why all of this relief and so on is going to happen and is happening. The fire here most likely refers to a useful one conveying a time of, of peace so that with the advent of Christ and the victory that he secured on the cross, 
that which was previously used for destructive purposes, like uh, battle uniforms and, and boots for soldiers and so on, that which was previously used for bad is now used for good. For good. Because that's the business that God is in. You realize that? God is in the business of redeeming that which was spoiled, that which was covered in blood, that which was used to break down and to tear down and to kill and to maim and destroy, destroy and all of the rest. God is in the business of redeeming things, redeeming that which was spoiled and that which was dirty. Not only things, but people and especially people. It's going to happen on a worldwide scale at the second coming of Christ, and it's already happening on an individual scale as a result of his first coming. God is redeeming souls, and he's bringing peace in hearts where it didn't exist before. Happened to you? Happened to you when you come to Christ? When you came to Christ? I know it did. I love the story of Josh McDowell in that respect. This whole idea of strife giving way to peace. If you're familiar with him, you probably know him as a famous apologist, a defender of the Christian faith. But before Christ, what you may not know is that Josh McDowell was a bitter, angry man whose sole purpose was to disprove the claims of Christianity and make its adherents look bad. That, that was the sole purpose of his life. He stated it explicitly in those early days of his young adult life. And so one day he decided, had this great brainstorm idea, not that he would set out to read the Bible in order to disprove its claims more effectively and make you and I look even worse than he already could. And so he started reading. And lo and behold, along the way, despite his predisposition against it, despite his attitude of suspicion instead of an attitude of assent, along the way he gave his life to Christ and Jesus changed his course 180 degrees so that now he spends himself trying to convince people of the truth. And now he spends his time writing books like More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Why? Why would somebody do such an about face? Why would they take off the battle uniform, so, so to say, and put on the robe of righteousness? It's because that's what happens with Jesus. Strife gives way to peace. Peace. I mean, how many of you could testify to the same? Be Amen. Before you embraced Jesus as Lord of your life, you were filled with strife and hatred. But when you believe, when you finally saw the light, something happened, didn't it? Didn't it? Like peace filled your heart. And you began to bring calm to people and to situations and rooms in which you walked instead of strife. Instead of you walking into a room and people going on edge, people began to breathe easier. Because that's what happens with Jesus. You bring him with you into the presence of those that you're with. And strife gives way to peace. You start showing kindness to everyone instead of just those from whom you need something. That's what happens with him in your life. Strife gives way to peace. And it begins to overflow to others. So that Lord willing, through you, his light shining through you, they too begin to receive the peace because they too have received Jesus. See how it works? Strife gives way to peace. Praise God for it. Here's number five. With Jesus, man gives way to God. Not only does despair give way to hope and adversity to joy 
oppression to relief and strife to peace. But man gives way to God. And this is verse 6, the one that you see on Christmas cards. But I assure you, it's not just for Christmas. For to us, it's the third four. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, mark that, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Once again, it's not just any old light that will shine to accomplish these things or any old person that will come. But Isaiah told us 700 years beforehand that it would be Almighty God who would accomplish these things. The one we know is the Son of God, God in the flesh. Or as Isaiah said it two chapters earlier in chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign of what? A sign of salvation. He'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know from the New Testament means God is with us. And yet again, Matthew confirms that Jesus is the one. God in the flesh. You see, with Jesus, we give way to God. Mighty God, as it says, full of strength and power and a wonderful counselor who offers wisdom and guidance beyond ourselves. An everlasting father who never leaves us or forsakes us or fails to give us exactly what we need. The prince of peace who brings us rest and contentment. That's the God who Jesus is, who if you're wise, you give way to in your life. Honestly, that's Jesus. And the government, it says, shall be upon his shoulder. It doesn't mean that he would bear the brunt of like some persecution from a government. It means that his rule and reign, his own, he will carry it all by himself. He alone will exercise authority over his kingdom, his nation that he is multiplying. A kingdom that he came to establish spiritually in the hearts and lives of those who love him. And a kingdom that he will establish physically when he returns over all the earth. So no, no matter how you slice it, now or then, with Jesus, man truly truly gives way to God. The question is, have you? Have you? Like, have you surrendered to his rule and reign? Are you familiar with his wonderful, wonderful counsel? Uh, Have you experienced his mighty power in your life to give you strength beyond what you could muster on your own? Like, do you rest in his everlasting love? Do you know his perfect peace, peace that is beyond our understanding? Do you? Man, if not, what are you waiting for? Give way. Give way today so that God can be with you. And if you already have, if you've already given way to him in your life, keep doing so every single day. Keep bending the knee before the Lord. Because listen, one way or another, you're going to bend the knee and you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you're either going to do it now and he's going to be with you. He's going to dwell within you from now till all eternity and you're going to see him face to face one day or you're going to do it later. You're going to bend the knee and be forced to bend the knee later on and confess Jesus Christ as Lord after he returns or after you die. And if it's then, it's too late for now for for you. If you do it then, if you wait until then, you will spend an eternity separated from him in the throes of hell. Either way, you're going to bend the knee. Why not give way now? Why not give way now? And again, if you already have, keep on and soak up this blessing of having God literally with you.
It's the fifth, fifth one. Here's the last. With Jesus, uncertainty gives way to assurance. Uncertainty gives way to assurance. Verse 7, of the increase of his government, his being the son that will come, Jesus, of the increase of his government, his rule and reign, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, it was the kingdom of David that was promised that would be an everlasting kingdom. It's the one that Jesus came to fill the shoes of. There will be no end of it to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then check out this last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of God Almighty will accomplish these things. Have you ever run into somebody who's really, really passionate about what they do? I mean, you know, one of those people is like over the top passionate. You're like, dude, just take a pill, will you? You ever run into somebody like that? Like a Kirby salesman. That was the one first part of our married life. If you sell Kirby vacuum cleaners, this is not dissing you. You're awesome, all right? And this dude was awesome, at least in respect to his zeal to sell Kirby vacuum cleaners. I was gone away at work. We were just newly married, didn't have any kids at that time. Becky was home, the Zerb Kirby salesman, knowing exactly what he's doing. He knocks on the door and he starts going through the spiel. And pretty soon she's like, man, I would love to have this vacuum cleaner. Can't make this decision on my own. Way too much money. Come back when my husband gets home from work. Oh, what time is that? Oh, 5.30. All right, I'll be back at 5.35. So I walk in the door at 5.30. Hey, sweetheart, how you doing? I'm doing great. How was your day? It was really good. Hey, by the way, there's an awesome vacuum cleaner that we need to buy. It's called a Kirby, and this guy's coming back in five minutes. I was beside myself, just beside myself. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't want another vacuum cleaner. We don't have the money for that kind of a vacuum cleaner. I don't care how good the thing is. Like, it's just terrible. Five minutes later, the guy knocks on the door. A few minutes after that, I let him in. Five minutes after that, he had me eaten out of his hand. 30 minutes later, he walked out the door with a check and I started vacuuming. No shame. No shame. Why? Why did I capitulate so quickly with that guy? It's because the dude was zealous about selling vacuum cleaners and he was not to be deterred. But listen... That zeal is a drop in the proverbial bucket compared to the passion and zeal of God Almighty to accomplish his work, as the verse says, to expand his rule and reign, to spread his peace, to establish his kingdom, to sustain his realm. He's passionate about it, and he will not be deterred. It's a promise that you can bank on. He's so passionate about it and has so much zeal, in fact, that he became flesh and eventually died to make all of this happen that we see here in these verses. That's zeal. That's zeal. And that is assurance that God would go to such lengths and such heights and such depths to fulfill his promises. That's assurance and you can have it. You can have it if you give way to him. If you see the light and walk in the light, just like Nate did, who I referenced a few minutes ago, who, by the way, went home to be with the Lord shortly after that last photograph. Difficult thing for us, certainly for his family, 
But he was a 20-year-old young man full of peace, full of peace and hope and joy and blessed, blessed assurance. A 20-year-old young man who didn't lose by any stretch of the imagination, but won. Because to live is Christ, yes, but to die, that's gain. And that's assurance. And that's what happens with Jesus in your life. Everything, including uncertainty, gives way to assurance. Let's pray. Lord, God, first of all, thank you for these promises and these blessings that are present tense available to us. You are so good. And God, for those who are already yours, those with whom you dwell, would you fill them with all joy and peace in believing and cause them to abound in hope as they trust in you more and more? I know you'll do that, Lord. I know that's your will. You, you say so. And so I pray that each and every person who names you as Lord of their life, God, would know that in abundance because of our time together this week. And God, for those who don't know you, would you awaken their soul with the truth of your word? And would you hear their prayer of faith and repentance even now, God? Would you hear? If that's you, you just call to the Lord. You ask him to forgive you of your sins and sinfulness. You invite him into your life and receive him as your savior. You declare him as your Lord, your master, your leader from now on. And you begin to bask and to rest and to revel in the blessings of his presence. God, awaken their soul with the truth of your word. You've won, Lord. You've won. And so have we with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.